Uh, it's a familiar passage to some of you, I'm sure. But it's, uh, I call it the barbecue in the beach. And it's John chapter 21. So we're going to read that chapter together. And then I'm going to kind of meander my way through it, if you, if you don't mind. I have to, this is terrible, I have to do this. I bought these the other day. There you go. That's <laughs> ah, boy, I can see again. <laughs> uh, Matthew, John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Actually, it's, it's lads. It's, that sounds a wee bit English. You know, friends, hello, friends. You know, it's lads. Hey, guys, it's that type of thing. Uh, no, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When he finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep, sheep, sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he said to him, follow me. The risen Christ is before them. They don't quite recognize it. They know it's him, but he looks the same, but different. But you know something, he's the same Jesus who walked dusty roads, who turned water into wine, who walked in the water, who healed the sick, who raised the dead. The same Jesus was there before them. And actually, the risen Christ stood before them. And the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. If it's true, everything's true. If it's not true, nothing's true. There he stands before them. And isn't it wonderful that the same Jesus, the same Jesus who stood before them, who walked with them, is alive today. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. A human being is in control of the whole universe, not some disembodied spirit, but a human being with a human body. 
He's there. And guess what? Last night when you were sleeping, he interceded for you. Didn't matter what you were doing, Jesus was there interceding for you. Wow, how absolutely amazing. Now, after the resurrection, Peter has this encounter with Christ. There was the excitement of discovering that Jesus was alive. And Peter was the first one, to dis- one of the first ones to discover that, of course. But, uh, and it appeared to them twice before. But things weren't right. So what you find here is there's a bit of confusion. There's, uh, there's lost. They're a bit frightened. They're a bit bewildered. They've seen him, but they're, best, they're disorientated. And, then, and sometimes, John particularly... A sign in the natural is a sign in the spiritual. So it's night. There's contrast. It's night. They're in the darkness. They go out to fish. And then when Jesus appears, it's morning. The light has dawned. It's a sign in the spiritual. Uh, John 21 talks a lot about ordinary. It's an ordinary scene, isn't it? Fishermen, a man on a beach cooking food, and it's very unspectacular. And Peter goes back to fishing. Maybe, I don't know, he wants to play it safe. After all the excitement of the last three, three years, you know, he, he denied Jesus three times. Not, not quietly, but publicly. And maybe he thought there was no way back. And so before we get to the restoration scene, a couple of observations that I've made on the passage. Because it's a wonderful scene of redemption and restoration. First one is this. Uh, they, go out, they go out and they catch nothing. Jesus wasn't at the center of their fishing. Jesus wasn't at the center of their fishing. Now, why do I, why do I say it? Well, every, every time you read uh, of a miracle in the New Testament, uh, one of the miracles of Christ, it always, it always testifies to who he is. It always tells you something about who he is. And he is the Son of God. He is, he is, the, he is the only Son of God. And so as the creator, he is able to do things that actually... We can't do. Now, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, he's enabled us to pray for the sick and see them healed. But he is the great creator, the one, the God of miracles. The second thing is that that his miracles always point to where he's going, something that's happening. Again, remember, a sign in the natural, this large catch of fish, the biggest catch probably they'd ever had in their lives. What does it point to? The day of Pentecost, when they're going to catch 3,000 souls on the one day. If Jesus isn't in what you're doing, you won't catch anything. It's very simple, actually. There's no part of your life that Christ isn't interested in. I, I, somebody said to me, do you have to rely on the Lord to preach? I said, after have to rely on the Lord to eat. I learned this a long time ago when I just became a Christian. I lived with my grandparents. My parents were, were split up. And um, I lived with my grandparents uh, in my formative years in my teens. And uh, I hadn't been a Christian very long. And I really struggled with math. Uh, and I, I, I was doing simultaneous equations. I don't know if anybody remembers them. I was, I was doing the GCSEs. I think they call them. No, the row levels, actually, to be honest. But with senior certificate, let's be honest about it. No, no it wasn't. G- no, it was, G- it was O levels. It was definitely O levels. And, uh, and I, was, I was up late one night, and it really worried me because I needed to pass math to, get, to go forward. And my grandfather came down and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm really struggling with this. And he said, have you prayed about it? I said, well, can you do that? He said, he said well, who do you think created simultaneous equations? I said, the devil, obviously. <laughs> They're satanic, that's what they are. And he said, he said, no, 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 it's the Lord. He said, you can pray about anything. 
And I pray, and I prayed, and and guess what? Honestly, I did, I did confession time, O level math three times, and the third time I got a grade six, which is forty to forty five, a pass, and I got through it. But it, 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 it just, it, it was just beyond me. But it taught me something about life. You know, whatever your stage is on your journey, put Jesus at the center of it. If it's important to you, it's important to him. There's anything that you can't talk to the Lord about. The second thing is very simply the fish. 153 fish caught. You know, have you caught anything, lads? They didn't recognize him and they see him and, uh, and they say no. And he says, you know, they're the experts, but throw the net onto the other side. And they caught so many fish that they could hardly uh, haul it into the net. It, I, I think it's really strange because it's hard to believe in this momentous scene. Somebody's counting the fish in a one. A two, a three. It, may, it makes no sense, but there you go, 153 of them. I looked. I was trying to work out, um, you know, what is, is this? Is it a significant number? And and people of theologians have put forward different theories. Number one of them is that um, the 153 was the number of fish species of fish in Galilee at that time. Uh, somebody said that it was the 153 was the number of races in an unknown world. But I've come up with this one, and I think it's really important. If you multiply the 12 tribes of Israel by the Ten Commandments, you add the 12 disciples, you add the seven churches in Revelation. (laughs) Wait for it! You add the seven days of creation, plus the ten plagues in Egypt, and you take away the number of the Trinity, you get 153. (laughs) I mean, it's there. I mean, I worked it out. It was just, just, it was incredible. But it teaches you something else, and it's this, that even if you make the catch of your life, it'll never be enough to satisfy you if Jesus isn't in your life. If you haven't responded, as Craig asked us to today, to the revelation of who Jesus is, it doesn't matter what you do with your life or how successful you are. If he isn't at the center of it, it won't be worth anything. It will will gain you nothing. And you get a contrast between Peter and John here. You know, it, it's always, you know, John understands it's the Lord, Peter acts. It's, it's, it's always the way. And, and Peter realizes it's the Lord and he immediately jumps out of the boat. You have to love him, don't you? He just acts with us. He's just, he's a, he's a, oh, oh we call a mover. I'm a, and in personality profile, I'm an 87% mover. I think, I, I move first and think less and think little. And actually, it's, it stood me in good stead most of the time. Most of the time, and uh, and uh, Jesus plans a barbecue on the beach, uh, and I, I love it because you know where did he get the fish from? Where did he get the bread from? Did he buy it? Did he bake it? Did, you know where, where did it all come from? But he lets Peter eat, and they all eat together, and then he begins to talk, and and you find out whenever you've done something wrong, the Lord invites you to come and eat with him. He wants to talk about it, of course. Realize that something's wrong. But the wonderful thing is this, that I've discovered this many years ago, that whatever you've done, Jesus invites you to eat with him and he forgives and restores and recharges you and sends you out to live and work for him again. There's There's a threefold question here. And it responds, of course, to the threefold denial. Remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed? He denies the Lord three times. So Jesus wants to take Peter back to that and ask him three questions. And, he, and he, so it's a, there's a fire. They sit around the fire. Remember that night when Jesus, uh, Peter denied Jesus? 
What was wrong? They, they stood around the fire. So Jesus is recreating the scene. Jesus wants to know that the two are related. It's, it's one simple meal, but Jesus restores Peter's relationship with himself. And actually, it's, it's very simple because Christianity, it's all about having a relationship with Jesus and restoring that broken relationship. First, our relationship with him and then with each other. And, and I, I've recently had this most, just something has happened the more I've talked about Jesus, that people somehow have, their eyes have been opened and they've given their lives to Christ. Here we have a carpenter and a fisherman sitting around a fire. I love it that he doesn't say to Peter, are you sorry? He doesn't say you're repentant. He doesn't say, I hope you feel bad about this. hope you're proud of yourself, mate. He just assumes that Peter knows that he loves him. That's a real issue. People don't know that God loves them. I, I often tell the story of when I was a young man, and uh, I'd, I'd, been to, uh, I'd been at Methody with uh, someone who became a Methodist minister, and he, became an, he was in charge of the Methodist thing, um, Central Mission in Grosvenor Road, as it used to be. And every week they would invite the homeless in, and they would give them soup and sandwiches if they, le- if they listened to a message. They called it something else, but I won't repeat it, what they called it here. And so when I saw them, I was, a, I was a, you know, just a, a bit like Jimmy described himself, and, uh, you know, in my early 20s, and these men came in, and I just preached death and condemnation and hell, dangled them over the fire of the pit for about 20 minutes, to be honest with you, and felt really good about myself. <laughs> and uh, they all shuffled out. And, uh, and my minister friend said to me, Paul, thanks for coming tonight. He said, there is just one thing. When somebody says that to you, there's a stinger coming. And, I, and he said, uh, these men that you've just spoken to, they have no doubt, they feel valueless. They feel that nobody loves them, that they're worthless, that they are, as you called it, hell and guilty deserving sinners. But the one thing they don't know is that there's a God who loves them. As a God who wants to reach into their life and show them love and grace and mercy. But thanks for coming anyway, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Taught me a lesson that day. That actually one of the things that people don't know is that, that God loves them. I, I, I think I, I sort of have come to the conclusion that in the New Testament, which they didn't have, how did they know they were Christians? How did people know that they were Christians? How did they? You know, if somebody said to me, how do you know you're a Christian? I'd say, well, the Bible says it. For God so loved Paul Reed that he gave his only begotten son that if Paul Reed would be... It's on the word of God. I, I trust in God's word. They didn't have God's word. What did they do? Well, actually, Paul, when he's writing to Romans, he tells us this. He tells us exactly. Romans, Romans 5, he, he, he says this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. How do they know they're believers? God's love was poured into their hearts. Can you imagine if you were a slave in ancient Rome? A million people in Rome, a quarter of them were slaves. They've got 250,000 slaves. And of course, numbers of them came to know Jesus. And of course, the God that they had thought that they worshipped, was angry and out to get them. Suddenly something happens. They say yes to Jesus and the love of God is poured into their life. That's how they knew. And then, of course, in Romans 8, again, Paul, Paul simply says, um, the spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves. Wow. 
The spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, he says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, what happens? They suddenly go, oh, Abba, Father. They, cry. they recognize God as Father. So one, it's the most important thing that you could, you, 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 could, uh, you could grasp, and it's this, that God loves you. Peter writes about it in his epistle, doesn't he say, we love because he first loved us. I wonder, do you know that today? Very simple thing. The older I get, uh, my, uh, my little granddaughter said to me recently, do you really believe in God, Papa? I said, yeah, I do. She says, why? And I said, because I believe that he loves me. And she said, how do you know that he loves you? And I said, well, because he sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. But actually, his love has been poured into my life. Father, would you pour your love upon every person in this place today? Would you let them know that you love them? you let them know that whatever they did last week or last night, you still love them? You're committed to them? Would you let the Holy Spirit pour the love of God into their life and into their heart? That's why Jesus begins with the question. Remember, he's assuming that Peter knows that he loves him, and I think he does. Do you love me, Simon? I, I, I like it because he, he said, do you love me more than these? Now, it's interesting. He changes his name back to the name that before Jesus gave him the new name. So he calls him Simon. And he points to, I think it's the fishing. Some people think it's the disciples. I think he's saying to him, do you want to go back to your old life? That, that's what he's saying to him. Do you want to go back? Uh, recently, I, I'm, I'm, recently I, I, I talked to someone who I uh, used, to work, used to work with, as in church work, and uh, totally committed, etc. And uh, they told me recently they were, they were an atheist. And uh, honestly... I don't think I ever felt, I've never felt as crushed in my life. I just felt the worst thing is of someone who, who, who went back. And that's what Peter's, that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter, do you, Simon, he says to him, do you want to go back to your old life? That's a very important question because actually it's a very easy thing to do, to turn your back on the risen Christ and say, I'm going back to my old ways. Don't go back. Now, some of you will know, and certainly those of you who are theologians will know that there are two words for love used here. I don't think that it's not, a, there's not one bad and one good, but in the Greek, there's two words. Okay? Are you, you with me? We're getting too technical. And I don't want to make a huge big thing about it, but Jesus, Jesus uses the word agape, and Peter replies with phileo. So, so there are different words for love in the New Testament. Now, in the Hebrew and the Aramaic in which they spoke, it was probably the same word. But for some reason, the Greek translators put two different words in here. And so Jesus, so, so remember, agape is the word that's normally used of God's love for us. And a man's love for his wife, actually. And it's the idea of committed love. It's not devoid of emotion, but it's no matter what happens, I will love you. 
And that's what God says to us. So Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replies with the word filio, which is brotherly love. Now, it's not, it's not a less love. It, it's an affectionate love. It's a, I suppose it, it, it includes the word kiss, actually. So you can get the sense of it. It's, it's, a, it's a heart love. And Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you agape love me? Peter says, I filio you. I, it's a different, you know, he makes a, there's a slight distinction there. And I wonder, I wonder, you know, is it Peter thinking, well, whenever I declared that I would never deny you, though everybody else ran away, I wouldn't. I wonder if he's saying that, you know something, I said that and I did it. So I can't aspire to that love that will love you in every, uh, every and any circumstance. But I've, I deeply love you, Lord. I'm a, there's a deep affection in my heart for you. And, and Jesus Jesus says it a second time then. He says, uses the same word, agape and filio. Peter replies in the same way. And you, you kind of wonder, you know, is he afraid to make a bold declaration of love in light of his failures or was he hanging back? In any case, Jesus doesn't ask him, is he sorry? He just says to him, do you love me? And I'm going to start asking you that question today. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? doesn't matter whether it's a gap bear fellow. Don't worry about that. Do you love Jesus? Um, about 35 years ago, I went to do a week's teaching in a Bible college in the Netherlands. And I met, a, I met a girl who was one of the lecturers. And she told me that when she graduated from Bible college in Australia... Uh, they had invited, a number of years previously, invited a man called Edward Miller to come and, and speak. Edward Miller was an American, but he'd been involved in this incredible revival in Argentina in 1949, 1950 and 51. I mean, it, when you read the stories of it and you hear them, you know, they, they, he filled soccer stadiums, football, sorry, I'm using that American expression. He filled football stadiums and, and they carried away crutches and wheelchairs by the lorry load. The truckload. Incredible things happened. And they invited, by this time he was an, a, a, quite an elderly man, a bit like myself. Uh, and uh, he, he, uh, he, he got off the plane and he was on a, they, he had a walker, a zimmer frame. And they thought, oh goodness. Uh, anyway, they, they, had the, they had the prize distribution and they, the mayor of the city was there. And it was a really big deal. And when Edward Miller got up to speak, he looked down at the front row and he just said, uh, do you love Jesus? And then he looked over here and he went, do you love Jesus? And then he looked here and he went, you love Jesus? And then he went, he went to every role, he went, you love Jesus? So she said, she said, you know, when he got to about 15, I thought, well, that's a great start, but come on, just move it on here. Yeah. 11 minutes. Got 11 minutes. Just went to, over every person. Mr. Mayor, do you love Jesus? Young man, do you love Jesus? Young woman, do you love Jesus? She said, about 11 minutes had gone by, and uh, he said a group, one of the, the graduates was sitting just second row, and uh, he'd been a rugby player, a huge big guy, and he said his shoulders began to shake, and she thought, he's laughing, but he wasn't, he was crying. And she said, within two minutes, every single person were weeping and crying. And she said, his point was simply this, you can have a degree, you can study theology, but if you don't love Jesus, not worth that. Do you love Jesus? 
Peter had to face it. He had denied the Lord. It had broken his own heart. I think, I think he found it difficult to forgive himself. And he, he could have justified himself, you know. I, I could have, he could have said, well, my life was under threat. I was afraid. I was disappointed. I felt hopeless and, 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 and not knowing what to do. But I, I just want to tell you that whatever you've done, whatever you've done, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. But there's something more as well. I have no doubt Peter felt guilty, but he probably felt shame. But Jesus not only forgives, forgives you, but he takes the shame from you. Somebody said, guilt, guilt is what you feel and what you acknowledge when you've done wrong. Shame is what you feel about yourself even when you haven't done wrong. So guilt is that you acknowledge your mistake or sin, but shame is you are a mistake. And you wake up in the morning and you feel I'm no good. You haven't done anything specifically wrong, but you feel shame. People often feel that. In 1945, my mother was 16 and she had a little boy outside of marriage. I wouldn't tell you if she was still alive. And, uh, and that's my older brother. Now, you think you're thinking it's me. I'm not that old, okay? <laughs> don't mind. But it's, it's my older brother and, he, and he's, he died last year and he went to be with Jesus. But when my mother was, um, had gone into hospital and she was beginning to have the signs of dementia and she said to me one night, uh, she got saved when she was about 50 and uh, she said to me, uh, Granny appeared to me last night, Paul. And I said, well, what did she say? And she said, she told me I was a disgrace. And my mother carried that shame with her until the day she died. You know, the wonderful thing about Jesus is this. When he invades your life, he takes away the guilt and he removes the shame. Because the devil wants you to think that you're of no value and no worth. That actually, not only have you made a mistake, you are a mistake. That's a lie from hell. You are valued by God. You're of infinite worth to God himself. He loves you and he removes the shame. Years ago, when you're old, when you're young, 10 points, one story. When you're old, 10 stories, one point. <laughs> we had a visiting speaker. I'd never heard him before. He was trying to talk to us about the love of God and what God felt about us. And he whipped out his wallet and I thought, oh no, he's going to talk about money. And he, and he showed it up and he went like this here. He said, look, and he had a little self, in fact, and there were a picture of three children in it. And he says, these are my kids. He said, you know something? God's got a great big wallet in heaven, and your picture's in it. He carries your name with him everywhere. I thought, well, that's a good one. I love that. I'll use that at some stage. And I, you know what's true? God carries a picture of you in his heart. He values you. And no matter what you've been up to and what you've done, when you come to Jesus, he removes the guilt, and he takes away the shame. He takes away 
the shame. And what does Peter, what does Jesus say to him? He says, feed my lambs. He recommissions him. He recommissions him. In other words, he says, now, I want you to do, not only are you forgiven, not only is your shame removed, I'm, I'm recommissioning you to do what I've called you to do. I want you to feed my lambs. I want, you to, I want you to be of use in the kingdom of God. And that's the incredible thing, that once he takes the guilt away, removes the shame, he says to you, now, I've got something for you to do. Why? Because you're of value to me. Your life matters to God. You may look at your life and point to failure, but you're not a failure. You've made a mistake, but you're not a mistake. Jesus, would you remove shame and guilt from people today because of what Christ has done? Do you let them know that that you love them? And then, of course, finally, finally, he'd grown cold and the fire was lit. It's It's a picture, sign in the natural, sign in the spiritual. And it's the whole idea of, of hearts grown cold. And do you think Jesus was subtly reminding Peter of that night at another fire? And he rekindles the fire in Peter's heart and he restores him. He gives him the opportunity to say, Lord, you know I love you. I think as I finish, let me tell you another story. Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced that ultimately all sin is a relationship issue. I used to think that if I did something wrong, it affected my relationship with Jesus. But actually, I think that I think that when there's something wrong with my relationship with Jesus, it actually leads me to sin. That's why Paul says, you know, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't indulge in the sins of the flesh. That's what comes first. So the most important thing is to concentrate. On, their, on, the, uh, on your relationship with the Lord. And I found, I found that over the years. And, and I, I was, I'd like to tell you, as I tell you a story, I'd like to tell you that I, I, I read the story of, in, in Homer's uh, Iliad, you know, in, in the original Greek, but I didn't. I saw a movie called Jason and the Argonauts. Anybody old enough to remember that one, that corny movie? You remember that? It, it's just so out of date today. But it led me to actually read the stories. And it really I caught my interest in them. And you read, it's two little stories that run parallel each other and, and there's one uh, about Odysseus and Odysseus is returning from the Trojan War uh, at Troy and he has to pass in order to get home he has to pass the Sirens which is an island and there were I suppose there were you know these mythic mythical creatures who had a beautiful voice and what they did was they lured sailors on the onto the rocks and then they devoured them it, you know it's hey it's a it's it's a fantasy but they lured them onto the rocks. So when, when Odysseus was going, uh, was going along, what he did was he poured wax in his men's ears and he got them to lash them to the mast so that whatever, they, they couldn't hear anything. And whatever he would say, he, w- he was tied to the mast and they got safely past because they couldn't hear. But it's interesting when Jason, Jason of Jason and the Argonauts comes past, he brings Orpheus with him. Orpheus was the most famous uh, a poet and singer and musician in the known world. So Jason doesn't bother with wax in the air or tying himself. He just simply, as they're coming up to it, you know what he does? He says, Orpheus, play a sweeter song. Play a sweeter song. And as Orpheus begins to play, the sound of the sirens isn't as sweet as the one that he's doing. Actually, it's a wonderful picture of what our relationship with Christ is. Ultimately, you can lock yourself away. 
But if you don't find the love of Jesus a sweeter song, you'll be drawn under the rocks. There's something about coming to Christ and, and putting your roots in him that changes everything. And so, as I close today, could I simply... Would you, do you want to come up and just get ready, guys? And, and just... Um, I just want to recommission you. Know God's love. Remove the guilt. Remove the shame. This is the first thing I've already prayed for today. The guilt. God's love in this place today. Can you sense that? And God recommissions you. Peter, I trust you enough to take care of my lambs. You're not finished. I've lots for you to do. I believe in you. Not because you're perfect, but now you need to believe in yourself. God doesn't give up on us. The conversation's private. I like that. I I think it is. God doesn't expose us. So that when Peter finishes his letters, and his letter to uh, the, the first and second Peter, he begins his letter with this. He says, May God give you more and more grace and peace. And then he tells them that God is the God of all grace. And he ends with this, Stand firm in his grace. If anybody knew about God's grace, it was Peter. Why don't you say pray now? You say, Lord, would you show me grace? You know what that is? The favor of God that you don't deserve. And, and as Craig said, you know, maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's the 22nd time. It's okay. I'm not trying to minimize anything. I'm just trying to say to you that God's not finished with you yet. 